Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Oh my gosh, welcome to season two of The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week. We are finally back and we are so pleased to be here. Before we begin, our next live show is officially on for February 1st. That's a Friday at Caveat, our favorite venue in New York City. Tickets are already available and last live show was standing room only. So you want to get on popsidecom slash weird to make sure you get your tickets right now. With that fantastic news out of the way, let's begin season two. At Popular Science, we report and write dozens of science and tech stories every week. And while most of the stuff we stumble across makes it into our articles, we also find plenty of weird facts that we just keep around the office. So we figured, why not share those with you? Welcome to The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week, a podcast from the editors of Popular Science. I'm Rachel Feltman. I'm Claire Maldarelli. And I'm Eleanor Cummins. If you are new to the show and you have made the mistake of not binging season one already, here's how it works. We start by each offering a little tease of some kind of story or fact curiosity journey that we came across while reporting, reading, writing, being fascinating people who work for Popular Science Magazine, etc., And then we vote on which one we just absolutely have to hear more about first. Once we've all had time to spin our little science yarns, we reconvene and decide what the weirdest thing we learned this week actually was. Eleanor, how about you start off with your tease? I want to talk about 20 dismembered feet of unknown origin (laughs) appearing (laughs) on the Pacific Northwest coast, my homeland, over the last 10 years. Great. Swinging for the fences. (laughs) Welcome to season two. Um, Oddly enough, uh, mine is also about uh, dismemberment after a fashion. Uh, I want to talk about an amputation performed on one person that supposedly killed... Three people. Incredible. That's great. <laughs> what a ratio. <laughs> and Claire, uh, what's your fact today? I don't like to talk about dismemberment. 
So I would prefer Get out. to <laughs> um, to uh, discuss why just because you can't touch your toes does not mean you are not athletic. Well, uh, it's not about dismemberment, but it is about feet. So I feel good about the symmetry of today's episode. What do we want to start with? I want to um, know why Claire wants to defend <laughs> not touching your toes. All right. Oh, okay. I thought we were going to do dismemberment feet washing up shore. But no, there's on, a bigger on question. weirdest thing, dismemberment is a dime a dozen. Please, okay, tell great. us about toe touching. Yes, great. This brings me back to my middle school years, which is, you know, a time where I feel like I peaked in many ways, but not in all. So as a middle schooler, one of my life goals was the Presidential Fitness Board. Anybody else remember? I, I remember it. It wasn't a goal so much of a like harbinger of doom. <laughs> I don't know anything about it. Really? I, I assumed that it was like in every school, but I guess some schools didn't have it. I don't know if you went to like private school or whatever, but all public schools had this series of gym class tests. They included the number of pull-ups, running a mile, and among other things, the last thing you had to do was something called sit and reach, where you sat and you had to stretch out your legs. They had to be like flat. And then you would reach forward and try to see as far as you could go. And if you went a certain number of inches past your feet, then you passed the test. Past your feet? Yeah, past your feet. So I got like negative seven. <laughs> And everyone was like, why? You're like a good at all the other things. Why can't you touch your toes so you or sit and reach? you could do pull-ups, but not touch your yeah. feet. Okay, I had the mile record and the pull-up record. Wow. And I had negative seven <laughs> in the sit and reach. Okay, now I'm seeing why, why this yeah. is a topic of conversation. Yes, thank you. Okay, so by high school, I had completely put it past me. And it wasn't until a few years ago at Pop Sci, here in these offices, that it all came back to haunt me. <laughs> So our editor-in-chief, Joe Brown, who tends to think I'm, like, on the elite level side of athletics, which I'm very clearly not. I mean, like, <laughs> relatively speaking, compared to the average New Yorker, I would say you are you are an elite athlete. Okay, well, I'll take that, but there is no Olympics in my future. So we were talking about stretching, and he was like, Claire, touch your toes. And I was like, mm, problem. <laughs> I cannot. And he didn't believe me, so I showed him, and he was stunned. Okay, so... <laughs> resurfacing childhood trauma. Yes, correct. Just All this another day at the office. Bo- <laughs> Come to Popsi. Um... So all this bottled up anger for the Presidential Fitness Award obviously came back in full force. So I decided what any good journalist will do. I wrote an article about it, and you can find it at popsci.com called Why Can't I Touch My Toes? <laughs> <laughs> and I will bring the highlights here, plus some new facts. I reached out to this guy named Jeffrey Jenkins. He was amazing. He's a physiologist at the University of Virginia School of Medicine. He told me a couple of things of note. First and foremost, the Presidential Fitness Award is now defunct. I did not know that. So it was created back in 1966 by then-President Lyndon B. Johnson as a way to keep kids fit through a series of quote-unquote challenges. <laughs> but shocker, most of the challenges that they tested didn't actually test kids' health. It just tested how flexible you were or how many pull-ups you can do. But that's not really a factor of how healthy a kid is. So 
In 2012, under the Obama administration, health officials did away with that test and moved more towards one that measures just health. As Jenkins explained to me, the three biggest factors that contribute to successfully touching your toes are the flexibility of your hamstrings, the range of motion of your hip joints, and the relative length of your arms and your torso to your legs. Now, of all of those, the only thing that you can actually change is the flexibility of your hamstrings. So... Uh, the range of motion of your hip joints. If you're born with bad hip joint range of motion, like <laughs> I, um, uh, there's nothing you can do about it. And the relative length of your arms and your torso to your legs. So sadly for that, I measured my relative length of my arms to my torso and I'm actually quite normal. So I can't, <laughs> I can't blame that. Um, so it's just the other two factors for you. That would be correct. Yes. To a certain degree, you can work your hamstring muscles to make them more flexible, but obviously your hips can't be altered by any of these stretching programs. If we go back to the span of your arms and your legs, if you were to take someone like Michael Phelps, who is famous for his long torso, his long arms, and his relatively short legs, which makes him like a killer good swimmer, would likely have no problem touching his toes without doing a single hamstring stretch. Correct me if I'm wrong, Michael Phelps. (laughs) Challenge accepted. (laughs) Generally speaking, more flexibility is a good thing. It promotes blood flow. And according to Jenkins, flexibility, training, and muscle elasticity itself can prevent certain kinds of injuries in sports and other recreational activities. So there's like the reasoning why some types of stretching um, is good for you. But he also told me that Just because you can't touch your toes doesn't mean that you are not physiologically fit or that you're not healthy. You don't have good, you know, blood pressure, things like that. That has nothing to do with touching your toes. And plus, a fun fact, I was like, well, I'm a runner. If I could touch my toes, then would I go to the Olympics? And he was like, no, actually... If um, a lot of runners actually can't touch their toes because it means that they have a lot more um, fast twitch muscles in their hamstrings, which makes them good runners, but it makes their hamstrings tight. Hmm. Okay, so... So a cheetah could not touch its toes. You know what? (laughs) Maybe. So a moral of all that story is not being able to touch your toes means nothing if you're a runner don't worry, you probably are better off not touching your toes. (laughs) But if you came to this podcast or you kept listening because you were like, I want to touch my toes and I can't, I have some advice for you (laughs) from Jenkins. This little physiology lesson. Your muscle groups contain cells called muscle spindles. So whenever you stretch a muscle, these sensory receptors tell neurons within the muscle to fire a signal back to the central nervous system through the spinal column. So it really all has to do with your nerves. This causes your muscles to contract, tighten, and resist the force to be stretched, resulting in that annoyingly painful, for me at least, I don't know about other people, (laughs) that most of us get when we first reach down to touch our toes and attempt to stretch. However, if you hold the stretch for a minimum of six seconds, you can actually conquer this reflex. Hmm. Around that time, the muscle's Golgi tendon organs, these are spindles of neurons that sit on the muscle fibers, kick in and inhibit muscle contractions, allowing your muscles to relax and lengthening the stretch that you do. That's why they tell you to always hold a stretch for 15 seconds because it invokes this effect. Cool. Okay. So I was like, I've tried that. (laughs) It doesn't work for me. What else you got for me? And what he told me basically was that pain is very subjective. So for some people, the pain that accompanies those six seconds is just too much. (laughs) 
And I was like, hmm, very accurate. <laughs> um, but for the majority of people, just holding it for those six seconds or longer, and if you keep doing that every day, you'll sort of get used to that pain and you'll realize that you actually can reach down further than you think. So it's um, like psychological. It's psychological. Wow. So I just have a problem <laughs> with the pain. <laughs> I mean, that's fair. Yeah, yeah. I actually, I remember I could like barely touch my toes when I was in dance class in fifth grade. That was like not good enough. Mm-hmm. We were supposed to be able to like put our palms flat on the floor. Oh my while we God. Toes. And I thought I was just becoming more flexible, but I guess I was just <laughs> learning to cope with excruciating pain, which is kind of what ballet is like, especially when you start too late, like at 10 years old and uh, have hips that are not at all suited to it but I can still touch my toes it's been a while since I tried to get my whole palm on the floor but it did indeed stick with me jealous the stretch over so jealous <laughs> I'm gonna try it at the I break because I don't know <laughs> all right well uh I guess I guess that's a good cue for us to stop and uh after Eleanor touches her toes or doesn't <laughs> we'll come back stay tuned to find out We're back. And uh, Eleanor, why don't you tell us about some feet? Oh, God. If you insist. (laughs) Um, This thing that I'm about to talk about is listed on Wikipedia. It has its own page, and it's called the Salish Sea Human Foot Discoveries. I think that's a really great way into this story. Basically, it's this thing that I would say is right up there with Sasquatch, except (laughs) it's 100% verified and totally real. In the Pacific Northwest, we're talking about, like, northern Washington state and southern British Columbia, Canada. There's this really weird phenomenon of dismembered feet showing up on beaches. The first event actually goes back to 1887. I I didn't know this before, but a full leg in a boot showed up in Vancouver, British Columbia, and it gave its name to Leg and Boot Square, which is a shopping plaza that you can visit to this day. That's a great namesake. Yeah, but uh, things really ratcheted up um, in (laughs) about 2007, 2008. So that's like when I was in middle school and early high school. Over the course of about 15 months, seven feet show up um, on this beach. Yeah, it was really weird because it was originally all men's feet and also all right feet. So if you have not been what? staying up to date on this <laughs> a phenomenon like that, and you heard about it at the time, like that's what you'll remember, because it just seemed so creepy, like some kind of strange machinations had made it happen this yes, way. Yes, that is definitely a serial killer. <laughs> yeah. So four of them matched in the end. So of those seven feet that eventually show up in this 15-month period, they eventually do find some left feet. They also find some women's feet. A few of them match, and so you have a total of five bodies, but the bodies never actually show up. Which is pretty atypical. Yeah. Usually when you find one body part, you can identify the other body parts. And and that's absolutely not true here. And all of them, I have to say, okay, this is maybe contentious and maybe you should cut this. But I have to say (laughs) that the shoes were really ugly. Um, The the Canadian Mounties put together this infographic where you can see where all of the shoes were found and pictures of the shoes. And they're all, like, New Balance from, like, 2004. Oh, like, like, they're really chunky. Honestly, I think Kanye West would really like them. They look like the Yeezy look that he's brought back. <laughs> mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. they all look like they weigh, like, 40 pounds. Like, they're just, like, thick. Mm-hmm. Very bulky. That's just a side, a side note criticism. <laughs> um, a, fa- a fashion uh, reportage, if you will. So over the next decade, more and more feet keep washing ashore um, in the same region. And it's, like, truly a fixture of my childhood, <laughs> these feet. Last week, my mom texted me and said something to the effect of, 
you know, I was thinking there hadn't been any feet in a while. And I knew exactly what she was talking about. <laughs> and she was like, and what do you know? And she sends me a link to a story that another human foot showed up on Jetty Island in Washington State on January 2nd. That's the 20th foot in happy the last New Year. 10 years. Yeah, Happy New Year from uh, Washington State, home of serial killers. There have been like a bunch of theories floating around. Uh-huh. Wait, just um, theories? No one has figured this out? We'll get there. <laughs> um, one that I remember hearing as a kid was like, well, these are just bodies that are being thrown over cruise ships, obviously. Another one is that cruise they were... Cruise ships always get it. Yeah. And another one was that they were like the Asian tsunami of 2004. That was like a really big one that people were saying that these were all just bodies that had eventually made their way across the Pacific Ocean. A big one, which Rachel, you already alluded to, is that the Pacific Northwest does have statistically an unusual preponderance of serial killers. And someone was like, this is just someone who's leaving feet behind as... Uh, as their calling card. Exactly. Their and so... It's really gross. <laughs> if you're listening, find a new one. <laughs> so in reality, two of those feet have been tied, um, unfortunately, to suicide um, using DNA analysis. But literally the other 18 are completely unexplained. And it has led to a lot of hysteria, not just among like journalists or citizens or even the people who find these feet, because all of these feet are found by lay people who like live near a river or on a beach and stumble across a foot, but also like among experts. There's just like so many crazy things that people have said over the last 10 years about what this could possibly be. So a lot of it really does remain unexplained, but I wanted to share a few facts about decomposition for your consideration as I continue to build my case for what is going on here. Yes, great. First of all, ankles, hands, and heads extremities in general, are known to detach themselves from bodies. That's actually pretty well established because Mm -hmm. they have pretty weak connections to the rest of your body. But usually uh, body parts turn to soap when they're, you know, in water Mm -hmm. for that long. That's a pretty common thing that happens with fats, right? Like they're just going to sort of dissolve over time. But shoes actually help to preserve detached feet. Mm. And athletic shoes in particular are considered fairly buoyant. There's a really great quote out there from an expert who's like, there's a reason you're not finding these sh- the feet in stilettos. <laughs> and so some analyses would suggest that an athletic shoe could actually float as far as a thousand miles with a foot in them. Wow. wow. Um, which is really you fascinating. Know I go a thousand miles. <laughs> exactly. To, to fall down on your beach and scare, scare you to death. So yeah, most of most of the shoes were um, manufactured for North American markets, but at least one was sold in India, which gives some like interesting legitimacy to this idea that they're all floating out there in the ether. And then uh, the other thing that's worth noting, I think, is that it was long thought that a human foot could survive up to three decades in like quote unquote optimal conditions because there was like this strange theory that was pretty dominant in science for decades that in a waterborne environment the whole body could just sort of float under the waves for like unknown periods of time but obviously research has shown that oceanic scavengers will do away with the body fish are hungry and they will (laughs) consume any meat in a few days so that's no longer um, believed to be true in other words like the sea is hardly optimal. But at the same time, there does seem to be this kind of temporal component because most of the shoes that turned up in 2008 specifically were manufactured between 1999 and 2004, which does indicate that they'd been floating for a long time. And the feet inside them weren't like perfectly intact. They were pretty significantly decomposed. In some cases, it sounds like it was just bone left in the shoe. Mm. So it does seem to be that this could have been going on for a long time and sort of accumulating. With all this in mind, the question is like, what the heck? am I supposed to to make of all of this? And this is a deeply unsatisfying answer, 
I really am sorry to disappoint you, <laughs> but today experts say that it's just currents. There's a quote from Parker McCready, who's an oceanography professor at the University of Washington, my alma mater. He told Vox, things that float at the ocean surface move with the currents, but also are pushed a bit by the wind, and this can be significant in getting them to shore. The prevailing winds here, he's talking about, you know, around the Salish Sea, are west to east, and so floating stuff in this part of the Pacific gets blown to the coast effectively. In other words, the environment seems to just be collecting what is evidently dozens to hundreds to thousands of body parts that are in the Pacific Ocean and just happens to concentrate them in this one area of the world um, in a really creepy way. And I don't know if this makes it better or worse, but it turns out that body parts washing up is actually pretty common. I think that it's like the sheer consistency of these body parts in the Sailor Sea and the fact they're all feet is right. creepy. Yeah, but like just the feet. Just the feet. But like other body parts, you know, that also are, are sort of detached from the body itself have washed up in New York City, in Rio, in Charleston, in St. Louis, even like on the Mississippi River, mm. in Fiji and, and others. And sometimes in those cases, it's been detached feet as well. I'm not sure if that makes it more or less creepy, but it basically sounds like there are just like way more feet in the Pacific Ocean than anyone would imagine. Oh, God. And this particular piece of the country is really receptive to those feet. <laughs> okay, what freaks me out the most is that all of these sneakers must have some killer foam in them. Yeah. <laughs> to have them float to the top. I mean, I want to run in these sneakers. Yeah, some of them are hiking boots too, mm -hmm. which oh, makes like less sense to me. Those mm -hmm. seem dense, right? Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. I wonder if it's going to become more common because it's so popular right now to have those shoes that are basically like socks on a foam platform they're so bouncy yeah so just perfect storm for the feet <laughs> for the floating feet <laughs> wow also just like one more quick question eleanor we've discussed <laughs> how you're like really freaked out by feet yes so i'm really amazed that you just delivered that delivered this parting. whole story about feet Thank you. I really love the First Amendment, and I believe in my <laughs> commitment to journalism, so I overcame. For some reason, this feels to me more about, like, ugly floating shoes than mm. about feet, per se. So I didn't have as much trouble tackling it as I would literally anything else about feet, including this conversation now that has turned into me thinking about feet. Plus, I feel like you grew up with it, so you've been, like, desensitized your whole life to just the particular realm of feet washing up shore yeah which yeah. seems to be different than feet what a thing to be desensitized to <laughs> only in the pacific northwest let's step away for a quick break and then we'll be back with one more quick fact hey weirdos looking for awesome popular science merch we've got you covered at popsi.threadless.com Pick up t-shirts, notebooks, tote bags, mugs, and other great swag with iconic vintage covers or modern designs. Plus, check out our podcast store and rep your favorite PopSci shows like The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week. All that and more at PopSci.Threadless.com. That's P-O-P-S-C-I dot Threadless.com. Okay, we're back, and it's time for another dismemberment story, my dismemberment story. We're going to go back in time for this one. These days, you'd probably be surprised to hear a surgeon brag about how quickly they can perform a particular procedure. I mean, sure, like, maybe they're like, ah, oh, you know, I did that heart transplant so quickly and well. Like, the, But the, <laughs> the thing that, would, <laughs> that they would really be emphasizing was the success of 
the surgery and their technical skill. Uh, but before anesthesia was introduced into the medical world, which was in 1864, uh, not that long ago, speed was really the most desirable quality in your surgeon. Uh, because the quicker they sliced, the less time you spent in hopeless <laughs> agony, and the less time you spent bleeding onto the operating table before they could stitch you up. In general, side note, as you might imagine, people avoided surgery at like all costs. But sometimes it was unavoidable. Obviously, amputations were necessary on occasion. They were starting to do things like mastectomies for obvious breast cancer. We were not total dum-dums in the world of medicine by the mid-1800s, but we certainly did not have anesthesia. <laughs> and uh, interesting point about that, actually, uh, a lot of the stuff that I'm going to be talking about today, I got from Dr. Lindsay Fitzharris's blog. Uh, she's a doctor and medical historian and author and host of a YouTube series called Under the Knife. Her blog is really awesome, and she has a lot of cool medical history on it. But one thing I saw there, you might ask, why didn't they just knock people out? Like, alcohol, a brick over the head, and anything should have been better than just, like, cutting into you while you were awake. But a lot of doctors actually thought that the pain was important because it would keep you energized and therefore alive. I think they basically thought the adrenaline was the only thing keeping you from bleeding to death, which is a little misguided, I guess. But so they didn't want their patients unconscious. They were like, the pain is part of the process. So part yeah. of the process. <laughs> so uh, surgery, not fun for most of its history. And a fast surgery was the best you could hope for. That's where Robert Liston comes in. Some historians have referred to him as the fastest knife in the West End. He had a 1 in 10 fatality rate, which was really good at the time. <laughs> oh, my God. Really good. That was on the table, anyway. That was not counting people who died of complications later. That is a really great name. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what a title. And some accounts actually uh, talk about him holding the scalpel in his teeth to free up his hands, which isn't crazy because this is right around the same time that there was a famous uproar over the suggestion that you might want to wash your hands between handling a corpse and delivering a baby. You might like, want to. Yeah. Physicians thought this was absurd. Mm -hmm. uh, they were mm -hmm. angry about it, probably because it suggested that women and babies had been dying because they hadn't washed their hands. So they were like, what, what what good would that do? So, yeah, it's really not hard to imagine Robert Liston, the fastest knife in the West End, holding a scalpel between his teeth, covered in blood, just tans deep in your, in your organs. So anyway. This is so upsetting. <laughs> that's, that's who Robert Liston was. Liston had a, a few really famous uh, surgeries. There was a book written about him in 2004 by medical historian Richard Gordon, where he reviewed a few of them. And I will get to those, and I will get to his most famous uh, and infamous surgery. But first, we're going to talk a little bit more about how just god-awful surgery was at the time, because I really want you to have context for why people would uh, submit themselves to Robert Liston and, and why he was uh, doing the things he did, which led to cutting off fingers and testicles that were not meant for removal. Um, so in 1750, the anatomist John Hunter described surgery as a humiliating spectacle of the futility of science and the surgeon as a savage armed with a knife. Oh, God. Another description from around that time, uh, in 1811, this woman named Fanny Burney had a mastectomy for breast cancer. 
And uh, she wrote some really vivid descriptions of the surgery. She said, When the dreadful steel was plunged into the breast, cutting through veins, arteries, flesh, nerves, I needed no injunctions not to restrain my cries. That means she screamed. (laughs) I began a scream that lasted unintermittingly during the whole time of the incision, and I almost marvel that it rings not in my ears still. God. That's like Edgar Allan Poe could not have written that. It's haunting. Yeah, it is truly haunting. Um, and it's just like, it's it's wild to think about uh, having to just be awake for surgeries. In fact, her surgeons decided to limit her anxiety by picking a day at random for her surgery and only giving her two hours notice. All right. Because <laughs> <laughs> this silly woman was uh, anxious about them cutting off her breasts for while no she reason. was awake. While she watched. And watched. Uh, Yeah, and like I said, many doctors actually thought the pain was important to keeping their patients alive. And so some of them would actually secure them upright in chairs, like lashed to the chair, so that it was easier to keep you from moving. Because it was really dangerous if a patient started thrashing around, and they did. Obviously, the patients thrashed around. No one can lay still calmly while someone is cutting off a part of their body. And that's where Robert Liston's Famous cases come in. We'll do some of the the less famous cases before we get to the one that killed three people. I'm nervous. (laughs) Uh, So according to Richard Gordon's book, his fourth most famous case, I mean, I think it's kind of a subjective thing to rank his most famous cases, but it's a great selection, Richard. So thank you. The fourth most famous case, removal in four minutes of a 45-pound scrotal tumor whose owner had to carry it round in a wheelbarrow. I assume before the surgery. I don't think he, like, <laughs> brought it out <laughs> You'll never believe what happened to me. <laughs> Though, I don't know, maybe. The third most famous case, he had an argument with his house surgeon. Uh, was the red pulsating tumor in a small boy's neck a straightforward abscess of the skin or a dangerous aneurysm of the carotid artery? Pooh! Liston exclaimed impatiently, who ever heard of an aneurysm in one so young? So then he whipped out a knife and cut it open, and the boy died. But the artery lives in University College Hospital Pathology Museum. Um, His second most famous case, we're getting there. He amputated the leg in two and a half minutes, but in his enthusiasm, the patient's testicles as well. Just Oh my god. (laughs) And that brings us to his most famous case, which is often cited as having a 300% mortality rate. So he amputated a man's leg in under two and a half minutes, but the patient actually died afterwards because there was gangrene in the hospital. At the time of the surgery, Liston actually also sliced off uh, the fingers of his young assistant, uh, who then also died of gangrene because that's how gangrene works. And then allegedly, he also caught the coattails of a guy watching the surgery because, again, we didn't know that bacteria was a thing. So people would just watch surgeries in actual surgical theaters. No one understood that the more people you packed into the room, the more likely you were to give someone gangrene. So he allegedly like sliced into the jacket of a very old man, maybe physician, who was watching. And there was blood splashing on him and he felt the knife catching on his coattails, he thought he had also been accidentally cut into, which is like a pretty reasonable thing given that an assistant had just had his finger sliced off. And that this man is a menace. This guy sounds like Edward Scissorhands. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, so according to lore, 
he died of a heart attack because he thought he had just been stabbed. Out of fear. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I really tried to find a primary source for this third death. The first two are very straightforward. Of course, people who had amputations died of gangrene all the time, like almost literally all the time. People literally did not wash their hands and they like walked in off the street to watch surgeries because they were crazy wild. And so that one's easy to believe. The assistant is also pretty easy to believe because uh, if you were performing surgery on someone who wasn't sitting up tied to a chair, uh, you had to have people hold them down physically. So there was almost certainly always an assistant with their hands very close to where the cutting was happening. And uh, Robert Liston uh, did not waste no time. He was the fastest knife in the West End. And you do not get that title by looking out for your assistant's fingers. Yeah, you don't get that title without cutting off a few fingers. <laughs> yeah, you can always get another assistant. You do what it takes. You can always get another assistant. You uh, can't get a new reputation. No. You know? So, uh, yeah, that I totally believe. Do uh, it for the brand. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure that many surgical assistants died of gangrene <laughs> at some point or another during this period. The third person, the spectator, it all seems a little theatrical to me. And I was not able to confirm it. It's certainly something that gets shared a lot. Mm -hmm. And it could be true. You know, an old man having a heart attack because he thought he'd been literally stabbed by a wild surgeon. Yes, it could have happened. Do we know that it happened? No. And if you have some primary literature on this, please send it my way because I would love to read it. That's the story of Robert Liston and his surgery that killed at least two, possibly three people. (laughs) I feel like watching two people die, I wouldn't even need to think I got cut. I would just (laughs) die up here. Well, the two gangrene victims took a while to die. Oh, okay. So everyone, the the surgery was ostensibly a success, minus a few fingers. The man who had a heart attack, if true, had the best of everyone involved. Yeah, crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Swift exit. Out like a light. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and apparently being covered in blood was like a badge of honor because it meant you were performing a lot of surgeries and very quickly. Which I just, I just like pour one out for the era when surgeons were just literal madmen who just cut off limbs. With their teeth. Yes. (laughs) So uh, what was the weirdest thing we learned this week? Feet washing up. Yeah, it was really hard to beat. Can't beat those feet. Yeah. Thank you. Congratulations, Eleanor. Yeah, this one's dedicated to my my home territory. <laughs> <laughs> Hometown victory. <laughs> the Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week is a popular science podcast. We're available on all major podcast platforms, so subscribe wherever you're listening right now. And if you like what you hear, please rate and review us on iTunes. It helps other weirdos find the show. You can buy our merch, including Weirdest Thing t-shirts, tote bags, and mugs at popside.threadless.com. The show is produced by all of our hosts, including me, Rachel Feltman, and our editor, Jason Letterman. Our theme music is by Billy Cadden. If you have questions, suggestions, or weird stories to share, tweet us at weirdest underscore thing. Thanks for listening, weirdos. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. 
Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today.